Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the failed permaculture designer, <laughs> history fan, and your ranty host. I actually just smoked a really nice joint. It was particularly nice, and I'm quite toasty and ready to rant, so oh. we'll see how this episode goes. Good God. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. How you doing, Moth? I'm fine. I, I had a cup of coffee. Well, I'm probably should grab another one since I'm gonna have to deal with you. <laughs> uh, so we have finally arrived at the birth of Mormonism officially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it only took us like four months to get here, but at this point, we've discussed the Smith family in depth, uh, their 19th century Christian occult worldview, yada yada yada. Joe the Teenage Witch, summoning treasure guardians that he later retconned into angelic messengers. You know the deal. Moroni, I choose you. <laughs> it is very kind of Pokemon y at one point. Uh, Joe's brush with the law, uh, meaning his 1826 trial for conning his neighbors, and his marriage to Emma Hale. Uh, then Joe got the plates finally. He engaged in some small wizard skirmishes to protect them. Uh, he met, meets Martin Harris, the wealthy Mark, and Joe beautifully pivots through some major Harris fumbles, including the lost 116 pages of the then-complete manuscript. I don't know if it's beautifully pivoted. The guy's an idiot. <laughs> I'm trying to give him some credit here. He, he manages a, a, a shit show pretty well for okay, a while. Next time something happens and I'm not looking like I am being completely honest, I'm going to go grab my baseball hat, cap. I'm going to start talking into it and be like, wait, 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 Cody. Wait. <laughs> wait. I God's was, coming in. I was supposed to do this. Don't get mad. Don't get mad. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. And then uh, then the last couple episodes, he possibly directed some group hallucinations and then published the Book of Mormon. So we're ready to start the church officially. <laughs> so and things immediately get hallucinogenic uh oh, and yeah, there's totally. exorcisms it gets fun so finally we're here we're at the fun point yes. after four months of shit drugs drugs we're at the fun point <laughs> party <laughs> um so on april 6th 1830 in manchester new york at the age of just 24 joseph smith led the very first meeting of his new church named simply the church of christ so uh this first meeting on April 6th uh, seems to have been largely a matter of like legalities and just organization. Um, approximately 40 to 50 persons were in attendance at this first meeting, although it should be noted that this consisted largely of the 11 witnesses and their respective families, as well as, you know, a few sympathetic friends and family of the Smiths. Many of them were who were actually like former money digging associates like the Knight and Rockwell families. So hmm. all of these guys starting the church are literally his treasure digging buddies. <laughs> And uh, and then there's Martin Harris, the the wealthy, <laughs> uh, gullible uh, backer. So after Joseph and Oliver Cowdery took turns ordaining themselves to the office of elder, uh, the men blessed the church's first official sacrament, and Joseph personally distributes the wine and bread. As Joseph himself recorded some years later in church publications, quote, we now proceeded to call out and ordain some of the brethren to different offices of the priesthood, according as the Spirit manifested unto us, and after a happy time spent in witnessing and feeling for ourselves the powers and blessings of the Holy Ghost. After a few days later, uh, another meeting... So did they just get high together? I, again, it's this, this first one is speculation, but again, preceding a sacrament ceremony, they all seem to have had the Spirit move among them, and many of them had like a visual... Uh, manifestations shall we say so i don't know but <laughs> it is curious mm. uh, and just a few days later another meeting was held outside of the whitmer farm in fayette new york just a, a small distance away um and another near joseph's uh, brother hiram's farm thereafter so they had like three quick meetings in succession all in this little area of uh, southern new york so perhaps the most meaningful moment during these first meetings for Joseph Jr. Uh, was he got to baptize his dad. And regardless of his conistry, um, I think this moment meant a lot to him. Um, 
because his dad had been kind of like a town drunk magician his whole life. Yeah. And this was his way of like bringing his dad to God. And it anyway, I'll get to the quote. It seemed a little overwhelming for Joseph. Quote, Joseph Smith Sr. was baptized in a small stream on Hiram's farm. Lucy said that Joseph Jr. grasped his father's hand as he came out of the water and cried out, quote, Oh, my God, I have lived to see my father baptized into the true church of Jesus Christ. According to Joseph Knight, Joseph Jr. basked out with grief and joy and seemed as though the whole world could not hold him. He went out into the lot and appeared to want to get out of sight of everybody and would also sob and cry and seemed to be so full that he could not live. <laughs> Knight and Oliver Cowdery went after Joseph and finally brought him back to the house. His joy seemed to be full. Some great tension had been relieved. And this is from uh, Rough Stone Rolling, uh, Richard Bushman's biography. Many biographers take this moment as a truly pious outpouring from Joseph that his father's lifelong intemperance and abhorrence for organized religion had finally been reconciled. Um, I find this examination tenuous and thin at best, as we shall see in future episodes. The intemperance and occult practices do not at all slow down. Uh, knowing Joe Jr. as I do, I personally see this as the first recognizable moment for Joseph that the fruits of his occult labors were finally paying off and that a secure position for his family, both financially and socially, were at least achieved for the first time in nearly 30 years. Like he had finally secured a position of respectability for his family and his dad. And also worth mentioning is that he, this, if, if the sacramental wine was laced, like I suspect it was, people get really emotional when you're, when you're on it. Like I said, I'm a very weepy person <laughs> when I'm on psychedelics. Whatever. Whatever this was, this was clearly a, a moment for Joseph. And he mm -hmm. was uh, a bit, a bit, uh, he had the vapors, as they said. <laughs> um, so for these first few meetings, at least while it's possible that the entheogenic substances were involved, it seems unlikely that they were used in any significant quantity. Maybe like a microdose, if you will, just enough to get the crowd like uplifted. Yeah. Um, but one can see sporadic evidence of ecstatic religious experiences. Uh, but relatively speaking, those first few meetings were rather humdrum. And there's little, if any, evidence that entheogenic wine or bread was administered. Because it happened so quickly afterwards, we can like speculate here, but it's only speculation. Yeah. Uh, it's with probably the, just mostly them being like, okay, we're going to meet on Thursdays mm -hmm. and, and, and we'll do it here. And all of you girls, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, within a matter of months, uh, this this attitude will change entirely as more visionary parishioners make their way into the new church. Okay. Um, but all in all, nearly 30 members of the church joined by the end of April within that first month. So we had 30 people in April. Mm -hmm. uh, some baptisms in these early years were preceded by one of Joe's cons, which in the early days of his career as a con artist did not always go as planned. Uh, Joe liked to pretend that he could walk on water in order to hype up potential converts before baptism ceremonies. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Um, and one such early baptism was sabotaged by some local <laughs> New York hoodlums uh, that, <laughs> that knew Joe for exactly what he was, and they hoped to reveal as much to the public. Um, so I would call these, um, what, do you, what would you call these kids? Um, Protesters? <laughs> journalists journalists um, yeah. activists re re uh, yeah uh, activists yeah seekers? local activists <laughs> we'll call them some local hoodlum activists nice quote uh this farm was one where they had been digging uh so one of the farms this is uh talking about where they're going to do this this farm was one that they had been treasure digging on ah Quote, this farm was one where they had been digging uh, of holes in the rocks by direction of Joe Smith in his fruitless hunt for hidden treasure. All these people were full of accounts of doings of Smith and his followers, and it was a, and it was adjoining one of these farms where the farce of walking on water was enacted. It was in haying time, and the cornwalls were mowing near the river, and they discovered tracks through the bush to this bank of the river. The boys made an examination, which developed a plank bridge just under the water, which extended across a level branch to the river to its opposite side. The planks were supported by legs driven into the ground, upon which were supported, and a tall, straight tree was plainly visible in its line. Hmm, so, so I wonder what he was doing when he was 
digging. <laughs> right. The, the mowers procured a saw and weakened the third plank so that no one could step upon it without going through to the river on its bottom. Fucking awesome. That night, from a good vantage point, the boys watched for its development. After dark, on came Smith with a number of proselytes to see walking on the water verified. <laughs> Smith stepped forth on the con- <laughs> Smith Aww. stepped forth with confidence and turned to address his hearers, telling them that his performance was a wholly a matter of faith and that their faith for its success was necessary as his own. And continuing, we will all thus continue our faith. And walking onward until coming to the weakened legs, down went the prophet, <laughs> breast deep into the river. I lost my faith. I lost my faith for a minute. He, he clambered out of the water with the answer that their faith had been weakened and that his alone was not sufficient to support him on the oh, water. Good save. Damn it. Here, too, was his favorite place for baptizing his converts. Unquote. Uh, and that is from uh, the early days of Mormonism in the Oneida Herald, uh, Thursday from January 18, 1900. I wonder who helped him build it. <laughs> it was probably... I'm guessing his dad. Guy, it was probably his dad or the guys involved. Well, like his brother probably. Hiram or yeah. o- Oliver is a very uh, good candidate for that. Hmm. But <laughs> uh, just the, the beauty of it. Um, this isn't the only time he'll get he'll get caught like this. Apparently, he tried to perform this another time, and uh, he was using a prop angel on the other side of I the river. I was going to say, I thought I remember you telling me something about an angel. <laughs> yeah, he apparently was doing this this bit and had a prop angel on the other side who he'd like call out to, and this like guy in white robes would show up and be like, "I'm here, Joseph, come to me." <laughs> <laughs> and apparently something very similar happened but instead of but instead of falling into the river he was walking across the water and a bunch of kids jumped out and grabbed the guy and were just like he ain't no angel and like ripped his clothes <laughs> off and like threw him into the river um so, so oh. joe got caught multiple times in the new york area during these early days and kind of very quickly shit his own reputation like <laughs> D- don't what is that don't shit where you eat yeah uh yeah he he never learned that lesson <laughs> um but um as a quick side note here in may of 1830 uh the indian removal act was passed which forced native american communities westward past the mississippi Ugh. um this will prove an important point for joseph's uh, motivations later Joseph and many others at the time viewed the Book of Mormon as a actual history of the Native Americans as much as like another testament of Jesus Christ. This was <sighs> sold as like a history of the Native Americans as oh much as a book gosh. of whatever. And Joe in particular. They're all like, that's that's not what happened at all. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's why they didn't get a whole lot of converts. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But they go out on missions to the Native Americans and they very, very quickly are like, yeah, I'm, I mean, you guys are nice and all, but. No, thank you. That's not what <laughs> happened. Um, anyway, uh, and so Joe in particular saw this as a unique opportunity to con uh, the Native Americans, which I mean, convert the Native American population to Mormonism. So they could stay? <laughs> well, <laughs> this dream would eventually evolve into a very narcissistic run for presidency and revelations that he would eventually conquer the United States with a Native American army culminating in a Mormon theocracy of his own design. <laughs> well, I'm all that's, about the Native American the army, but... But not, not led by a Mormon no, prophet. definitely no. not. No. Um, this would make Joseph analogous to Mormon himself in the Book of Mormon, uh, who as a prophet general led such armies in the Book of Mormon for religious fascism. Uh, coincidentally, within months of this act being passed, Joe uses his walkie-talkie to God and begins t- this uh, process towards a Mormon America with the Church of Christ's first mission to the edge of Native American territories. But anyway, that's that's another episode. I'm just as a side note, right now is when that's happening, and it's it's very shortly after this that Joe starts sending out missionaries to the Native Americans to try and convert them and build a so army is that... to take over the U.S. with. Okay, but that's. But the missionaries were going out before then? No. The, so the church gets founded and yeah. like one of their first missions is to go out to the Native Americans. And so try this and Native them. American uh, Removal Act is really what instigated all of the little guys with their bicycles and their khaki pants. <laughs> uh, I guess. Wow. I, I guess you could say that. Um, 
he was always going to have missionaries, but that specific mission to the Native Americans, what he called the Lamanites, was to convert them. And as we saw in the racism episode, to make them white and delightsome and then lead an army of of Native American Lamanites against the the U.S. and take over mm-hmm. and establish a Mormon theocracy in the United States. But that's <laughs> we're we're episodes away from that. Um I just had to mention it because that's when this that's, that's when, when this happens mm-hmm. right after the church is founded and it very obviously has an influence on Joe's decision making skills. Yeah. yeah. So, uh nearing May of 1830, uh just a month after the founding of the church, the newborn Mormon religion experienced its first miracle uh, with the apparent exorcism of Joseph Knight's son, Newell. So Joseph Knight, one of the treasure digging guys that ran around Joseph for years at this point, mm-hmm. his son, Newell, who knew Joe from a teenager and had been, had been watching him do all this stuff his entire life, mm-hmm. is clearly impressionable <laughs> and is wrapped up in Joe's new con. And this is what happens. Um, the new prophet, Joe Smith, was visiting the Knight family, who had uh, likely seen him around many times before during his days as a scryer, like I said, and actively participated in that with him. Yeah. Do you mean he's like out loud saying, dear God? Yes. Please. So, so like that whole uh, new little house on the prairie thing. We're like, dear God, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That, like that, in the beginning of that one. Sorry. Silence I'm sorry. Like in the beginning. Goddamn professionals. What about that? God, I can't think of the band now. Is that heavy, heavy, a lot of heavy metal songs? They start out with the little kids praying. Like, oh, there's Metallica. Yeah, like okay. that, Metallica. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So it's like that. Um. Yeah. But it like it was a it was a matter of like proving your faith to other people that you would pray out loud, and it was a way of like Joe How kind of calling proven? people out. I I don't really get it, but it's just a thing. Okay. So it's a thing that leads to this other thing. It sounds silly, but the praying out loud thing was a, a that big was, deal. That apparently. was a thing. And, and Noel, what was his Newell. name? Newell. Yeah, who okay. will continually come up in the story uh, hereafter. Oh, okay. So Newell is the first one to, dear God. He's, he's one of the first Mormon zealots. And he really buys Joe's new con hook, line, and sinker. Um, so dur- Joe said all this at this first meeting at the Newell's, at Newell's family uh, farmhouse where Joe was like proselytizing and trying to convert his treasure digging buggies into his new religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so New- Newell apparently like reluctant or embarrassed about praying in front of his family and friends kind of awkwardly backs out after he says this and states that he would pray vocally, uh, but rather in the alone in the woods. So like I'll pray vocally, but just, I can't, I don't want to be around people, which I totally get <laughs> as a young kid. They made me pray around people and it's, it's really uncomfortable as a kid. Um, I do remember having to do it when I'd go to a friend's house at night. They'd at nighttime every night. The mom and dad would sit and tuck them in, and then when I'd sleep over, they'd be like, "Okay, we're gonna pray." And then they'd pray, and they'd be like, "Moth, would you like to pray?" And I'd be like, uh, "Thank you for my dinner." <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's weird. It's yeah. a weird experience. So I totally sympathize with with uh, Newell's. Can I? I, I just want to do it alone. Um, but according to everyone involved, including Newell himself, while in the woods, he found himself unable to pray vocally, feeling an immense amount of anxiety and guilt regarding his ability to pray around others. Uh, so Joseph clearly hyped this kid up really, really bad about praying vocally. So he got he hyped him up so much and they're in the in the forest. He went out to the woods to pray and just couldn't do it. But he was with a group of people. No, he was alone. He couldn't do it by himself. Yeah. And so this is, according to Joseph Smith himself, this is what happened afterwards. Okay. Quote, he, meaning Newell Knight, uh, began to feel uneasy and continued to feel worse both in mind and body until upon reaching his own house. Back, so he was in the woods and he went back, home, back home feeling shitty. Okay. Uh, his appearance was such as to alarm his wife very much. He requested her to go and bring me to him. I went and found him suffering very much in his mind, and his body acted upon in a very strange manner. His visage and limbs distorted and twisted in every shape and appearance possible to imagine. And finally, he caught up off the floor of the apartment and tossed about most fearfully. His situation was soon made known to his neighbors and relatives, and in a short time, as many as eight or nine grown persons had got together to witness the scene. Uh, So he's like thrashing around this room in a state. And everyone kind of jumps in to to check him out. Uh, Continuing on. 
After he had thus suffered for some time, I succeeded in getting hold of him by the hand, when almost immediately he spoke to me, and with great earnestness requested of me that I should cast the devil out of him, saying that he knew he was in him, and that he also knew that I should cast him out. I replied, If you know that I can, it shall be done. And then almost unconsciously I rebuked the devil, and commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to depart from him, and immediately Newell spoke out and said that he saw the devil leave him and vanish from his sight. Did the poor little guy have a seizure? <laughs> well, we don't, we don't know. Well, I'll speculate in a moment. The, the quote's almost over. So Joseph concluded this situation with, The scene was now entirely changed, for as soon as the devil had departed from our friend, his countenance became natural, his distortions of body ceased, and almost immediately the Spirit of the Lord descended upon him, and visions of eternity were opened to his view. He afterwards related his experience as follows, quote, I now began to feel a most pleasing sensation resting upon me, and immediately the visions of heaven were open to my view. Hmm. I felt myself attracted upwards and remained for some time enwrapped in contemplation, insomuch I knew not what was going on in the room. By and by I felt some weight pressing upon my shoulder and on the side of my head, which served to recall me to a sense of my situation, and I found that the Spirit of the Lord had actually caught me up off the floor and that my shoulder and head were pressing against the beams." So he felt like he was levitating. Mm -hmm. So the, although this was related by Joseph Smith, he cleverly does not report seeing Newell levitate, but rather relates that Newell's experience of uh, levitation. Oh, okay. So this is, again, Joe's really clever at wording things. Yeah. He didn't say he saw this, but Newell experienced himself doing this. And this strongly suggests to me that Newell's entire experience was subject subjective and wholly visionary in nature. Uh -huh. Like he wasn't actually like whatever it was, he was in an altered state. Right. Yes. Yeah. But clearly this was just another hallucination and right. one that he thought Joe could direct, which leads me to believe once again that perhaps Joe gave him some private instructions on right. what to do in the woods. Right. Exactly. And what this I was ended thinking. badly. And he was like, go get my guy. He knows what to do. Yeah. And again, have, uh, we've talked about this in the previous episodes, having a babysitter who knows how, how to like quickly bring you back to the good spot. Yeah. And again, the visions of heaven, um, heaven immediately opened to him. This all is very, very suggestive to me. Again, it's a subjective experience by one person, so I can only speculate so far. Yeah. I tend to stick to the group experiences, which we will get to by the end of the episode. So... I don't think it's too far a stretch to speculate at this point that Newell maybe had some private instruction that he didn't think of mentioning because we've already covered why they don't mention that all the time. Right. And during this time and very shortly after, he, d he is administering things to groups pretty clearly. Yeah. So <laughs> this first, this is known by Mormons as the first miracle of the church. And this exorcism of Newell Knight, I think, is more easily explained as probably one of Joe's like... I got a zealot here. <laughs> I'm going to give him some private instruction. Well, or, I mean, his dad was kind of in on it, too. He could exactly. have overheard something and thought, oh. Whether or not this involved entheogens or, like, any type of uh, laced wine or whatever, Newell is clearly suggestive. Yeah. And as we see him pop up again and again through the story, mm -hmm. there, you can see why. So either he was highly suggestible and, and a visionary kid, mm -hmm. or he got some kind of instruction from Joe. Um, either way, he thought Joe could direct this experience, and he did. I think this shows the prowess. This is why I call Joe the Entheomagus, is because like <laughs> whether or not he needed to give you entheogens, he could direct visionary experiences. It was like a, a hypnotist or a mesmerist. You just know how to do this, especially for visionary or, or impressionable people. Anyway, I'm sorry. I digress. Um, l later that May, uh, Newell and a number of the Knight family was, was baptized into the Church of Christ by David Whitmer. And just a few weeks later, on June 9th of 1830, the church's first quarterly conference was held in Fayette, New York, where the family attended as members. It is with this first conference wherein we find the first tangible evidence for its administration uh, of the like entheogenically laced wine en masse. Uh, Joseph Smith, again, this is Joseph Smith's. I'm quoting from Joseph Smith, recalled of the conference, quote, having opened by singing and prayer, we partook together of the emblems of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the Lord's Supper, which mm -hmm. I've talked about. 
Much exhortation and instruction was given, and the Holy Ghost was poured out upon us in a miraculous manner. Many of our number prophesied, whilst others had the heavens open to their view, and were so overcome that we had to lay them on beds or other convenient places. Among the rest was Brother Newell Knight, who had to be placed on a bed, being unable to help himself. By his own account of the transaction, he could not understand why we should lay him on the bed, as he felt no sensibility of weakness. He felt his heart filled with love, with glory and pleasure unspeakable, and could discern all that was going on in the room, when, all of a sudden, a vision of futurity burst upon him. He saw there represented the great work, which through my instrumentality was yet to be accomplished. He saw heaven opened and beheld the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, and had it made plain to his understanding that the time would come when he would be admitted to his presence to enjoy his society forever and ever. When their bodily strength was restored to these brethren, they shouted, Hosannas to the God and the Lamb, and rehearsed the glorious things which they had seen and felt whilst they were yet in the Spirit. So this is a very Pentecostal um, first conference for the Mormons. Everyone... There, this is known as like the Pentecostal period for the Mormons where they're doing ecstatic stuff like this. Okay. But no one mentions or even entertains the idea that the wine which preceded all of these meetings <laughs> may have been laced by the occultist Joe. And again, I, like if you break, go to the Science of Psychedelics episode, hit the checklist and break down everything that Newell just experienced by like not understanding why he needed to be placed. He was so ecstatic, filled with love that like... Oh, joy. Oh, God. Oh, joy. <laughs> Blessed. And he's getting a download. He's like, he's witnessing heaven and mm-hmm. he's getting a download of his position in the great plan. Like, mm-hmm. this is all very <laughs> classic psychedelic behavior. Yeah. Protocols, again, are just, this. all of it are, are almost point for point hit on in this, in this first conference. So... To reiterate, uh, after the administration of sacramental wine at the hands of Smith, a group of 30 to 40 parishioners undergo a radically visionary and ecstatic alteration. If this were a one-time or even an occasional occurrence, Mormon apologists might be able to make an argument that such were endogenously induced or just naturally, Joe was just really good at doing this. Mm -hmm. However... This simply does not hold, given the regularity with which the Mormons experienced uh, shared visionary church meetings after this period. Over the next 14 years, there exists additional, unambiguous evidence of Joseph further refining and perfecting his ability to induce such ecstatic church meetings, even eventually uh, proving his ability to predict and orchestrate their occurrence. Furthermore, it it is curious that Joe, as Antheomagus, seems to lose his skills for theophanic induction during times that correlate with a lack or scarcity of entheogenic materials. Hmm. So he's really good at doing this when things are going well for the church and he has the ability to like go out and like collect herbs. Yeah. And, like, he has money right. to do this and all that. But when they're out in the woods and like going from place to place and like things are hard and they have to stretch their rations and like anytime that happens, he can't do this for some reason. Yeah. So... Again, we have to take into account that this happens during periods of prosperity for the church. Yeah. And when it goes underground, when it does arise again underground, it's during like we see it in the early New York days. Then they had to move and we don't see it for a bit. Then we see it in the Kirkland years where they got comfortable and settled. Then we don't see it for a few years because there's a bunch of shit for like two years where they go to Missouri, then they get kicked out, and then they end up in Illinois. Then it pops up in Illinois again where they get comfortable again. So like all of these visionary periods of the church correlate with the comfortable periods where they had money and time and resources and the ability to do this. Did nobody ever die? Was it just very – was he just really good at micro (laughs) – We'll we'll get to the buried bodies in the Mormon history. Oh gosh, um, people were straight up murdered and silenced over a lot of this. Um, okay. So God knows how many people were accidentally killed. Um, we really don't know. Uh, there's one specific person who I'll get to d- later down the story who who was a supplier for Joe. 
like I have verification that he was at least a hard liquor supplier for Joe, hmm. possibly more. Okay. And they went on week long benders together, where both men all the like both men were really good at keeping journals. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, in during these week long periods, both men's journals go silent, and then everyone around them is like, "Yeah, Joe and Joe and so and so went on a little bit of a bender, and <laughs> we didn't see him for a couple weeks." And uh, on the last of these benders. Uh, he mysteriously dies afterwards. And Joe is seen the day before, the day before he dies, Joe is seen being taken down from a schoolhouse in a state of revelation, pale and sweating and like can't move and people are carrying him. Oh, they went to Vegas. Sorry. Well, we'll get to that. I'm, I'm, I'm burying the lead, but, uh, but it gets very unambiguous and, and these periods are, are worth noting. Okay. So with all of this activity and attention from fanatic Christian visionaries, Smith was garnering uh, in a a community that previously knew him as a confidence man and a cultist. And so understandably, Joe was also gathering um, fanatic critics as well. Um, Mobs of disgruntled neighbors began attempting to break up baptism meetings via sabotage, like the plank incident. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Like they say sabotage, but this is one of those things where like, the plank incident would be categorized as like they were persecuting Joseph. Whereas, like, yeah, well, it's like oh, no, not really. We're, we're trying to like have these people. We're, we are activists. Yes, activists <laughs> trying to reveal the truth. So uh, they began like following Smith and these groups in an act of like intimidation and like breaking up meetings and stuff. And finally, just like weeks after the first visionary conference of the Saints on June twenty eighth. While on a visit to the Knight family, uh, Joseph finds himself arrested once again by the townspeople of South Bainbridge under the old charge of being a disorderly person. So all those guys that watched the trial just like four years earlier, like, Uh hey, (laughs) your new religion, we need to talk about this in court. (laughs) And he's arrested again. Um, But you said for... um being inebriated they so they kind of trumped up this they needed to get him accountable and they kind of trumped up this charge because he'd commit remember he like yeah no i remember and like just kind of bribed his way out of this absolutely this was them bringing up that old charge to like but i thought you never were really held accountable for that so like we need to retry you okay um we'll see what happens he he squirrels out of this as as joe just is really good at doing but like I said, uh, many members of the Bainbridge community had remembered Joe's appearance before Judge Neely four years before and were attempting to expose the occultist turned prophet uh, for his newest con. Uh, Constable Ebenezer Hatch brought Joe to yeah, South Bainbridge. He was, it was for juggling. Juggling. It's all the same. Disorderly person juggling. It's, it's essentially means you're, you're a con artist. Oh, or, disorderly or, means you're juggling i thought it meant he was drunk it's a it's in a public broad, it means that today but like back then it was a broad term for just like you're causing trouble oh you're a disorderly person okay um you don't have means of employment and you seem to be conning money out of your neighbors and making a living without really earning it okay <laughs> that was at least that's how it was used in this case Com- uh, constable Ebenezer Hatch brought Joe to South Bainbridge under some duress, being followed closely by an angry, drunken mob uh, the entire way, whom likely wished to solve the Joe the Prophet problem via mob justice (laughs) uh, before he could slip away out of the backwoods court systems again. Joseph Knight Sr., who hired two local lawyers in Joseph Smith's defense, uh, said that the charges were for pretending to see underground. Uh, a number of Smith's former neighbors came forward to give rather damning but objectively tenuous and circumstantial evidence at best. Joseph's uh, lawyer, John Reed, used essentially the same defense that Joe had used in his 1826 trial, that Joseph was a pious and honest young man and suffering from religious persecution, and that the trial was trumped up by nearby churches feeling threatened by his new American religion. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Joseph Knight Sr. and Newell Knight uh, testified to Joe's legitimacy again as as a modern prophet. Uh, and so sadly, Joseph Smith is once again acquitted, likely under a statute of limitations. So like this trial had gone so long that we can't really retry you for it. Um, in a shocking twist, however, Joseph Smith is immediately arrested again <laughs> by another constable who carries him away to Colesville, New York, under essentially the same charges. <laughs> This constable does not offer Joe the same protection as the does, previous constable had. I'm, guess, I, I'm 
pretty sure double jeopardy doesn't isn't hasn't been established in this early on okay i didn't think so either um so this uh, this constable is not as nice to joe and he doesn't really protect him as well as the other constable which they probably knew which is why they dragged him into that county (laughs) Uh, and so joe is left to fend for tavern scraps under the ridicule of hostile tavern goers he's just left to like the dude's just like yeah go ahead sleep eat do your thing and joe hadn't he'd been dragged to this trial and like probably hadn't eaten much or of anything and then like had to hike to another town and was probably starving and then everyone at the t- at the tavern knew who he was and was just like hey it's fucking joe the prophet and they're probably throwing food at him and being dicks and he had to like eat <laughs> shamedly in the corner this is one of the few moments where i feel like joe maybe got a taste of what he deserved <laughs> um but anyway uh John Reed, uh, Joe's lawyer, meets him in Colesville the next day and uh, at a court of special sessions, which is held with three New York judges, extends until uh, after 2 a.m. the following day. So they have this court trial that's like over a day long and it doesn't end until 2 a.m. in the morning, which is kind of the par for the course in, at that time with like backwoods courts. it They lasted forever and just until it was done. So... During one of the prosecution's testimonies, it is worth considerable mention that witness Joseph A.S. Austin stated that after being acquainted with Smith's antics as an occult con artist for many years, that he, quote, saw the prisoner drink a certain quantity of distilled liquor and was drunk, and he does believe, for he could not stand up, but lay in the woods for some hours. Uh, So given Joe's devotion to intoxicated ventures into nature where biblical and angelic figures subsequently interacted with him, it appears that the contemporaries of the 19th century spotted the prophet's entheogenic catalyst immediately for what it was. They didn't always mention it, but everyone was like, yeah, he gets drunk and he goes in the woods and then he talks to angels. And just because they said he was drunk, that doesn't mean like, that doesn't really specify what was intoxicating him. They were just meaning he was intoxicated. Yeah, he was intoxicated, right. Um, So Joe himself rather revealingly also admitted, quote, I can take my Bible and go into the woods and learn more in two hours than you can at church meetings in two years if you should go all the time. He just (laughs) pretty, pretty openly admitted that he could do that. It takes more than two hours, but. It was depends on the. That's true. The the dosage or the dosage or the antigen. True, Uh, true, true. True, true, true. Regardless, uh, Joe is once more acquitted very wisely skipping town and making his way to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to meet Emma and his Mormon hierarchy. Uh, Joseph and his small band of proto-Mormonites continue meeting in small groups and performing baptisms, uh, despite all this. Joseph may have even contented himself to like a life of a small, if eccentric, backwoods preacher, honestly. Did, did like, I'm sorry, did little kids and everyone, like, did everyone drink the wine? Mm-hmm. So I just... I think so. This is where it gets into, and we'll we'll touch on it in a, uh, later episodes more because they they talk about it a bit. But it seems like there was a social safety break in place where, mm-hmm. like, he encouraged people to drink as much as they want, and he even handed out in pails with like just a a ladle, a ladle. And so I think there was a a, a thing in place where like women were expected to drink less because you were less respectable to get drunk in public. Right. And, and kids little kids too. obviously aren't going to get super drunk, uh, except in rare cases. Whereas like a lot of the Mormon men found it a, a matter of pride to show how much sacramental wine you could down. Sorry, I'm just imagining them like tying up their little bonnets and putting their little, <laughs> their little aprons on and being like, we're going to church girls. Come on. And, like they're just going to all get super high. <laughs> <laughs> well, and don't get me wrong. There were definitely women that had, Whole blown visionary experiences. And oh we'll, yeah, no, we'll I don't touch on this later. Yeah, but most of just the... imagine this like very fairy outing to <laughs> yeah. go to church to go get high. At yeah, church. go let's go. To church. Um, but most of the most of the accounts come from men, and most of the really outwardly ecstatic um, behavior seems to have come from the men during these church meetings, which makes sense to to me. But. I mean, I might be trying to Texas sharp sharpshoot here. No, I um, or probably the women also just didn't speak, and maybe they just talked to each other. I, mm-hmm. I imagine they probably they don't want to hear what they gotta say. Whatever it was, uh, it there's <laughs> there seems to have been a a thing in place to make sure like not everybody got super loaded or like kids weren't just like <laughs> downing <laughs> sacramental wine, right? Um, it probably didn't taste too good to them. I don't know. 
so anyway, Joe Joe had kind of like resigned himself to just being a backwoods preacher, and like it was a good con. You could make a comfortable living for your small Smith family, and it was I I think that was his motive at this point. He even he even told David Whitmer that quote he was through with the work that God had given him the gift to perform, except to preach the gospel. So he's like, all my revelatory powers are gone. I'm just here to like preach what I already wrote and we're just going to sell this book and this is going to be it. Um, but you know, such was not the case. Joe repeatedly found himself having to dial God in order to solve this problem or that. And he found himself constantly editing or evolving his new theology and cosmology to like deal with people that questioned too much. Yeah. Like saw holes in his narrative. (laughs) So he very quickly like painted himself into a corner Mm -hmm. where he like had, he either had to shut up and move on mm-hmm. or be the thing that he said he was. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't like stay a country preacher because this thing kind of got out of his hands too quickly. Towards the end of summer in 1830, it's only a few months after they started, not only does Joe continue to find himself uh, the religious pariah of his New York neighborhoods, but he began to deal with his first struggles for power within the new church. Most notably, his partner, Oliver Cowdery, began making edits to Joe's previous revelations, which infuriated and offended the narcissistic Joe. Oh, I can't um, even imagine. Oh, he, he writes, I, I didn't include it here, but there's a scathing letter to Oliver Cowdery, just like, you do not alter the word of God. And it's... <laughs> He's like, but it's not God. <laughs> so aside from that, uh, one of the eight witnesses, Hiram Page, Um, found a dark seer stone of his own and began prophesying in the same occult manner as Joseph. Because originally Joe was like, hey, revelation is a power God gives everyone. And so Hiram Page, one of his confidants and members of the hierarchy, was like, yeah, "Yeah, I got got revelations. I got all sorts of revelations. (laughs) And remember, they were like, they were um, waiting for the end of days. So a big question for the early church is like, where is God going to come? Like, if Always. God's going to come down again, yeah. where we should, where we wait for him? Yeah. So most of Hiram's revelation seems to be like, where are we going to end up? Ah. And, but it was like out of Joe's control and he has to micromanage. So he can't have somebody else make that decision. And Joe seemingly had like abandoned his practice of uh, the seer stone publicly mm-hmm. just like a month prior because of the trial he was in so like oh okay that really like he used his stone publicly for the next four years mm-hmm. through the translation all that yeah and then he got arrested again and that's a pro- that's about the last time we see him use it publicly okay he still receives revelation with his head in a hat and all that but he does it privately with like one or two people present he doesn't do it in a group of people anymore and while he does not abandon the practice entirely um a good deal of the revelations contained in the doctrine and covenants were again, like I said, received with the head in the hat. As historian Richard Bushman rightly speculates, it seems that many of the founding Mormon congregation felt or began to resent Joseph for this fact that he had like abandoned his like earlier practices that they'd watched him do for years, mm-hmm. especially like because of the trial. There's, I, I think it was kind of like a, you're, you're really going to kowtow to the uh, being arrested. I thought you said this was religious persecution. Like, yeah. Stand up if, for your beliefs. Yeah. Well, if, um, if God's really on your side, you shouldn't be worried. Exactly. So David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery in particular, both of whom held a lifelong lived hereditary interest in Christian occultism. Remember, both of them had families. That I'm were sorry, who? Uh, Cowdery and Whitmer. Oh, okay. Both of their families were into this for like generations before. Mm-hmm. And they saw the new revelations of Hiram Page to just be an extension or a continuation of an already accepted Mormon praxis. Okay, so they liked it. Yeah, and they, they were like, well, Joe does it. And yeah. He said he's done, and Hiram, I guess, is the new seer. And that was it just made sense to them. Yeah. So the church and its founder clearly valued personal revelation. And, you know, like I said, Page seems to have filled that newly felt void left by Smith. And while bouncing around from several small branches of his new church, uh, Joe is finding himself like spread thin. This was all going on while he was out of town. So he just, yeah. (laughs) So this is part of what upsets him. Um, So it's a little bit shady. It's a little bit shady. Um, I I mean, I can't imagine. I can guess why. Like I can, I can't imagine him being like going up to Joe and being like, hey. So, you know, like obviously it was gonna, I'm sure he knew it was just gonna be a, a shitstorm no matter what. I don't know. I think he, so he like would bounce around from town to town. 
uh, managing these small branches. Mm. And he just left on one of these trips. Okay. And Hiram, and he and he just said he was done. And well, Hiram had a stone. He okay. was like, well, I can do it. Yeah. I know the trick. Yeah. And so he started doing it. I really okay. don't think they so thought th- this would be uh, an issue. Okay. Um, because Joe, like I said, for a long time had been saying that like anyone can do this. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this all went on through the summer. And by early September, Smith caught on to this and he really felt like he needed to consolidate and reaffirm his like supremely ordained authority. So after arriving back to the Whitmer farmstead in Fayette, Joe found Cowdery and the Whitmers and several other early Mormons seriously examining Page's revelations regarding the church. They'd been like scribed onto just like his stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joe immediately goes radio to God and delivers this revelation known by Mormons today as DNC 28. You can read this in your your thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll read a bit from that now so you can get a feel for how pissed joe i i mean i mean god yeah i mean god which i'm I, this is probably a perfect time to throw it in but i i was able to look up the natal chart for the church of the latter-day saints mm-hmm. and the sun sign is aries which is it's all about self it is the it is the opposite of Libra, which is all about others and groups. So yes, no. So it's Aries is all about self, which can't, it's not a bad thing, but can be, obviously it can, there's negative, uh, sides to that. And the ascendant is Leo. So I don't know. Becoming white saviors for the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Uh, yeah, sorry. I thought this, I'm just thought that was really relevant to this since he, right now he's being clearly like, no, 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 I'm the only one. I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is first, uh, Joe's first yelling at Cowdery in this revelation. Uh, I'll do this in my God voice. Yes. Uh, Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things wheresoever thou shalt teach them by the comforter concerning the revelations and commandments which I have given. Wait. Do it again. Do it more gaudy. Oh. Do I wish I had my head in a hat. You can hear it muffled. Oh, I feel like that yeah. would add a layer. Gosh. Anyway. We don't have hats. Quote, Behold, I say unto thee, Oliver, that it shall be given unto thee that thou shalt be heard by the church in all things whatsoever thou shalt teach them by the comforter concerning revelations and commandments which I have given. So he's giving Oliver permission to like, you can talk about the things I've already said when you're in the spirit, but it's got to be about what I've already said. (laughs) I mean, me, Joe, not God. It's God. I'm God speaking about Joe as though I'm Joe. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Sorry. These get so confusing, (laughs) especially when you remember he's doing this with his head stuffed in a hat. Yeah. Gollum. And the meat telephone that is Joe. (laughs) Quote. But behold, verily, verily, I say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church excepting my servant Joseph Smith, Jr. (laughs) For he receiveth them even as Moses. And thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron, to declare faithfully the commandments and revelations with power and authority unto the church. If you if you don't know. So Moses was the uh, the voice of God. He was the prophet. Aaron was just like the right hand man who like enacted and like clarified. And he was the guy that answered the hard questions. <laughs> well, so he was like his. Uh... He was the high priest. So like. Okay. Um, so Moses was the prophet. And Aaron was the high his priest. He was, <laughs> yeah, he was his PR guy. Okay. Yeah. That's a <laughs> beautiful way of putting that. Uh, quote, and thou shalt be obedient unto the things. Oh, I already said that. <laughs> <laughs> and if thou art led at any time by the comforter to speak or teach or at all times by the way of commandments under the church, thou mayest do it. But thou shalt not write by way of commandment but by wisdom. And thou shalt not command him who is at thy head and at the head of the church. So you can make your own personal revelations, but don't you dare counteract Joe's revelations. (laughs) For I have given him the keys of the mysteries and the revelations which are sealed until I shall appoint them another in his stead. And now behold, I say unto you that you shall go unto the Lamanites and preach my gospel unto them. And inasmuch as they receive thy teachings, thou shalt cause my church to be established among them. And thou shalt have revelations 
but write them not by way of commandment. Unquote. Uh, tra- translation. You fucked up, Cowdery. Yeah. You can talk to me, and I may talk to you, but what I tell Joseph to tell you is fucking law. Listen to Joseph, and don't talk back. As punishment, you can go teach the noble savages to convert me an army, but for fuck's sake, do not give them any revelations as law. Anyone else noticing that Joe's God voice sounds a lot like the overarching narrative tone of the Book of Mormon? Maybe it's just me, but on to the nasty, evil, false, <laughs> Hiram Page. Quote, And again thou shalt take thy brother Hiram Page between him and thee alone, and tell him that those things he hath written from that stone are not of me, and that Satan deceiveth him. <laughs> For behold, these things have not been appointed unto him, neither shall anything be appointed unto any of this church contrary to the church covenants. I just see Hiram in the background in like Simpsons type drawing going, for all things must be done in order and by common consent in the church, except when Joe says it, there's no consent. It's just, that's just law. Um, and if thou shalt assist to settle all these things according to the covenants of the church, before thou shalt take thy journey among the Lamanites. Translation, you fucked up too, Paige. Your stone was a devil stone, which I know looks a lot like jo- Joe's God stone, but it's definitely a devil stone. And the things that come out of it are devil nonsense. Aww. You can go with Cowdery and teach the Lamanites and think about what you did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the next person who is able to give revelations is someone that Joe's allowed to pick. So this is where this starts to come out. Joe, orig- um, this is where the, the factions come out. So Joe originally said that I'm done revelating. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do any of this anymore. Um, the sealed portion of the the plates mm-hmm. and all the other revelations that are going to come next are going to come from my son. And he even like before he even translated the b- plates, he went around saying that like I'm gonna my firstborn son's right. gonna translate. Yeah, this. I remember you saying that. That kind of went under the voice. Yeah, that. Yeah, that <laughs> and died. now he's like, oh my my firstborn son's gonna be the prophet, and this was gonna be a hereditary pro like theocracy. Right. Um. And so when he eventually dies, uh, his his only his firstborn son died like several right. times over. Right. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um. So his only living son at that time was Joseph Smith uh, the third, because he's Joseph Smith Jr., Sr. He's the third. Um, But he was a baby when Joseph Smith died. Um, Oh, I didn't know that. There was a a faction split because a bunch of the Mormons were like, hey, for years, Joe said his kid was going to be the prophet. Right. So someone should be the prophet, like until he's the prophet right you have a game of thrones situation oh (laughs) my gosh okay and so there and so brigham young a very charismatic businessman Mm -hmm. who is in the mormon hierarchy Mm -hmm. takes over a huge faction of the mormons okay so that's who he is that's that's the lds faction okay and the faction including many of the original guys that apostatized like cowdery Uh didn't like smith but when smith died they took Emma and the little Smith and were like, okay, we'll go start this church over here. Interesting. And they started the, the FLDS and that's the foundational. I can't remember. It's the FLDS. Okay. And then there was another group called the Strangites, which this guy, this guy was awesome. He, he just said, Joe, uh, like a month before he died, Joe sent me this letter, which I clearly plagiarized, (laughs) which I, which I clearly, uh, um, counterfeited right and and uh, uh but it gives wonderful me, joe fashion it gives me reign over the church Ooh. in regular joe fashion mm. he then digs up these plates <laughs> called the vori plates which are crude childlike drawings which it just looks like somebody was like yeah i can't engrave and they like tried to engrave really stupid childlike. He drawings. went to that guy tattooing in his garage, and just like Joe, set them up in a carny like like you pay a nickel and come see the plates. <laughs> and <laughs> he he had a huge faction of the church called the Strangites, and they used to like he had a prop angel who would dump phosphorus on himself and stand on a mountain, and in the middle of the night, like 
unveil himself covered in phosphorus and people would be like that angel's glowing it was like a scooby-doo episode for fuck's sake. um <laughs> and just like joe he fucks too many people's wives mm-hmm. and gets murdered by his followers <laughs> so um the the splinter groups that f- came out after his death yeah. that's kind of the foundational like why it was like who has authority joe said this kid has authority apparently this guy says that joe said he has authority yeah brigham's just a dick and says that he has authority <laughs> and okay. it, anyway that's how that's what happens way down the line but, is the fd flds still a thing yes um and that's where fred smith comes fred smith was joseph smith the third son so he run he was running the flds which is funny because like i tried posting about this stuff on reddit and mm-hmm. i got a bunch of mormons who were just like yeah we're not interested in that because he's not really mormon and he's not really a prophet this is just clickbait and i was like he is literally a mormon prophet and the grandson of joseph <laughs> fucking smith and he was an advocate for peyote like you don't think that's a mormon pro- you think i'm writing clickbait anyway yeah I rant fucking Twitter and read it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, yeah, that's where all that comes from. Fred Smith is Joseph Smith, the third son. That's where that line comes from. He was running the FLDS when all his peyote shit was going on. Okay, so he's part of the FLDS. Mm -hmm. Okay. Brigham Young is the LDS. Brigham Young, the guy that they like has the the college and they like totally just, what is the word? Uh, Defaced his uh, sculpture, which... Yeah, it's awesome. He totally earned. Yeah, too. yeah. Uh, if you heard the racism episode, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, so yeah, that's that's where we're okay. At. Thanks for explaining that. Um, okay, so Joe is the one who is. He says that his son is going to do it, and then Hiram and Caldry are going away to try and get some native americans to yes so he he tells them to go on this mission they don't immediately uh, anyway so yes they do uh Caldry page and a small group of others leave to make their way to the borders of native american territory um along ohio and missouri i think okay um and given the book of mormon's like racist backbone and its stance on the savage nature of the evil dark-skinned lamanites mm. It should be no surprise that most of the members of the tribes uh, that the early Mormons did visit were largely uninterested Mm -hmm. in another group of white saviors coming to teach them the right way to live, (laughs) or better yet, how to become whiter and more delightsome. That's a Book of Mormon quote, not mine. That's the racism episode. Go check that out. Anyway, to this end, the men uh, going on the mission are instructed by God slash Smith to take plural wives among the the Native American women. And this is the first like polygamous revelation that Smith gives just months after the church starts. Go take a bunch of wives among the Lamanites, uh, both establishing a marital alliance with the tribal communities and verifying Joe's racist theories about whitening the Lamanites. Right. Which on the opposite side, a lot of Native American women were encouraged to uh, yes. procreate with the whites just so they could keep peace Unfortunately, yes, a lot of Native so American it women was, were used as bargaining yes, ships a lot exactly. of the time. Yes, exactly. So it's it, it it's another episode for another podcast. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Joe was just feeding into that idea that they were willing and able to take uh, white husbands, and they wanted to whiten up the the tribe. Right. There was different reasons for both sides, but yes. it was yeah. But it was kind of this weird, fucked up. Like they both anyway. Yeah. Although uh, the Mormons' first mission to the Native Americans was an utter failure, uh, the trip did have its benefits. Uh, Enter another religious visionary by the name of Sidney Rigdon. And that's where we'll end today. Okay. That's where we'll start things. This this mission was a disaster, but they did convert uh, this guy, Sidney Rigdon, and his whole church of uh, parishioners. So they... A small group that only had like a you know, less than a hundred members in like one night convert like three hundred people. Oh snap! So okay. this is a huge win for the church. And okay. Sidney Rigdon, if you'll remember from the earlier translation episodes, may have known Smith for years at this point, and may have helped him even write part of the Book of Mormon. We don't know. Okay, but <laughs> it's it's one of those like miraculous coincidences that happen in in Joe's favor that seem to be orchestrated by Joe. Okay. Um, we'll get to, we'll get into that though. That's next episode. Okay. Okay. Um, 
I finally started using Twitter. You can find me at Mormons underscore no. Mormon. At, you can f- <laughs> Mormon. You can find me at Mormon underscore drugs. One Mormon plural drugs. One Mormon lots of drugs. <laughs> um, the website is mormonsanddrugs.com. Instagram, which is me, would be Mormons and Drugs Podcast, I believe. And uh, yeah, um, we we had a Facebook page and I took it down because. Fuck Facebook. Yeah, fuck Facebook. <laughs> uh, honestly. Gmail, Mormons and Drugs yeah. at gmail.com. Yes, and their Gmail. I'm pleased. We've gotten a few really good emails. Thank you for yeah, writing us, we dear love, listeners. We love getting emails. We really appreciate you like, guys. share, write yeah. us emails. We enjoy interacting with you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys are all safe and healthy. Don't die of COVIDs. Please. Please. Or, or protests. Yeah. Or that. I have a feeling that's going to get deadly soon. We're in Portland. Stop telling everyone where we are. I'm going to take Sorry. it out. I'm taking it all out. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>